Welcome to another episode of the Divorce Survival Guide podcast, where we have real, honest, smart, and sometimes even hilarious conversations about co-parenting, separation, and divorce, and all that goes along with that. I'm Kate Anthony, your Divorce Survival Guide, Certified Life and Relationship Coach, and Happily Divorced Mom, who helps women decide if they should stay in or leave their marriages, and then guides them through the process one step at a time. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode. So my son started high school this week. Oh my God, there's nothing that makes you feel old, quite like having a child in high school. (laughs) Um, For those of you whose kids are still little and you feel like the time is going, it really is because pretty soon you're going to be as old as me, which is as old as dirt, by the way, um, and have a kid in high school. I'm not old as dirt. I'm kidding. Um, Before I bring you today's guest, I want to talk to you about a conversation that something that keeps coming up in my Facebook group, uh, which if you're a woman, you should 100% join. One of the conversations that we have over and over again in there is as women are starting to come to the realization that a lot of what they have been living with is not okay. And this is a phrase that's repeated over and over again. Well, I mean, it's not like he like hits me or anything. And my response to that is like, is the bar really that low? Like, is that what we're talking about here? Well, he doesn't hit me, so it's okay. Like, are you fucking kidding me? And what I also find happens is that when women tell their stories, this is why we need to be in community about this stuff. Because when we hear other women's stories, we have an objective point of view and we relate to it so much. We relate to the stories and the experiences, but we have a completely different reaction to it when it's someone else's story, right? So I might really relate to what someone else is saying, but for them, I will be absolutely horrified that this is the life that they're living. But yet I'm living the same life. And it's sort of like the analogy of the frog in water. And if you haven't heard that, I will uh, will tell you. So if you throw a frog into a pot of boiling water, it will jump right out. But if you were to put a frog into a pot of, of cold water and then turn up the heat very slowly and slowly simmer the frog, it will cook itself to death. It will not know to jump out of the pot. And my guess is that so many of the women that are in my Facebook group, my clients, people going through my programs, the women that I talk to every single day, many of them are like that frog in that slow simmer. And that if they were to actually walk into their marriage the way that it is today, they would never stay. They would jump out like the frog does out of the boiling water. But they've been living in it for so long that they don't feel the heat. They don't feel themselves cooking to death, dying a very slow, slow, drawn out, emotional, psychological, spiritual death. That, I mean, that's really one of the things that I help women with in in my work is to, to rid you of the notion that what you're living with is okay. Um, if it's not, 
right? So I can hear it objectively and realize like, oh my God, you cannot be suffering from that. That is not okay. Um, you know, and again, they'll often say, well, he's not hitting me. So, and again, I say that bar is way too low. I just wanted to say that because it has been on my mind a lot. Okay, on to today's episode. Today I have with us uh, Kimberly Nelson. And Kimberly is a financial advisor. And she works with high net worth divorcees in the LA area. But our conversation is really um, just about all of the things that happen financially in divorce. And, you know, really divorce is a transactional process. You're making decisions about property, money, and time. This is not a referendum on the emotional issues, right? Like who did what to whom, who's right, who's wrong. Like, because if that's what you end up litigating, you set yourself up for financial and legal disaster, which is one of the things that Kimberly Nelson and I talk about today. Kimberly has sat next to countless divorcing spouses facing significant financial challenges during an overwhelmingly emotional time. Emotional turmoil tends to cloud decision-making. So our hope is that this episode will provide a roadmap for detangling conjoined financial affairs and allow you to move forward with your divorce with peace and empowerment rather than fear. So without further ado, here is Kimberly Nelson. Kimberly, thank you so much for joining me and for coming on to have this super important conversation about all things money related. You bet, Kate. And thank you so much for the invitation. I'm really looking forward to this discussion. Yeah, me too. Why don't you just start us off by uh, telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do, why you're the person we should be talking to about this. Absolutely. I know Um, you're the person we should be talking to about this. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Kate. I sure appreciate it. Um, You know, I've worked in finance and specifically finance in Los Angeles here for about 15 years. And, um, you know, I've I've learned that. you know, it can be really a confusing thing for a lot of people, finances. Some of us are better at making money than we are saving money. Uh, We're certainly better at spending money than anything else. So it's really- (laughs) I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) It's an important discussion to have. And, um, you know, I've sat next to countless divorcing spouses, specifically in this city, also facing significant financial challenges during, you know, what's certainly an overwhelmingly emotional time. And Emotional turmoil tends to cloud decision-making. So what I'm hoping to do with you today is just provide a roadmap to some of your listeners to um, detangling the conjoined financial affairs so that if, uh, if, you know, if you are wanting to move forward with a divorce, the question of should I stay or should I go, which is the essence of uh, what you're trying to do here, Kate, for your listeners, um, needs to be made from a place of empowerment and not a place of fear. So restore a bit of confidence and financial peace of mind as, um, as we prepare to make some very personal decisions about uh, our lives today. Yeah. And it's, you know, I think it's so important because I think a lot of people, uh, you know, I, my clients sort of fall into two camps. There's the, the ones that are really looking at this sometimes through a lens of fear, which is Mm -hmm. not, uh, necessarily, uh, I think helpful, but also just oftentimes like really pragmatically really looking at, you know, all right, um, if I if I make this decision, what is this going to mean for me financially? And then I've got the camp of people who are on the other side, and they're like, "Oh 
no. (laughs) I didn't think this all the way through. What do I do now? I think that this, I think this information applies to both. So trying to decide, or I've already left and like, whoa, (laughs) what do I do? Right. So what is, what do you think people's financial goal for their divorce should be? You know, the, um, the financial goal of, of the divorce is pretty simple. It's just unwind this, this partnership that at this point has been reduced to a simple business arrangement with as little cost complexity and collateral damage as possible. And I think that um, one of the reasons that men and women sometimes end up on the wrong end of things financially is because the breakup is so emotional and they're literally overwhelmed with feelings. So Mm -hmm. for all of us who've been through a traumatic breakup, it's easy to lose sight of a lot of the little things that you can be focused on now that can make uh, some greater challenges down the line uh, a, a little less challenging. You know, for example, the first thing that you really can can do for yourself and your family financially is just know what it costs to run your household. I think a lot of people, uh, women especially, often don't even know what it costs to live the lifestyle that they're living. And that includes, you know, a high luxury lifestyle or not. Absolutely. It doesn't matter, right? But you know, and I, and I do know a lot of women who certainly a lot of stay at home moms, um, or even not right. Who actually have no idea, uh, about the finances in their marriage. And that is such a mistake. Mm -hmm. It's extremely typical Kate. It really is. I think that even in 2019, uh, we still rely on just one partner to really handle the financial matters. Typically, I think it's still the man in the relationship, but um, women need to really start taking an active role in the household financials and understanding what it takes to run the household. And if you're going to run a household on your own and try to keep your children in the same living standard they've become accustomed to, you need to really start tallying all of those charges today and uh, and creating a, a household budget. You know, things like childcare expenses, groceries, the mortgage, home maintenance, um, car payments. Those are just a few of the things. Um, those are those are pretty obvious ones, but there could be some additional household expenses that uh, that you don't think about. You know, there's, there's life insurance, for example. You want to be able to maintain all of these things, maintain uh, the, uh, the sports and the, the fun things that you do with your kids. You're going to have to run a second household. So knowing what it costs to run one, there are a lot of charges that are going to be the same, but a lot now that you're going to have to double. So you think about that as well. Looking at your spending habits and starting to track expenses now is an important part of this. So you can do that by hand, just pen and paper, old school, or with an Excel spreadsheet, or there's great software like Mint or QuickBooks out there nowadays that can make this pretty simple too. But um, you can review the last six months or 12 months of credit card statements and just see where your money's going. Make sure that you know uh, what's coming in and what's going out. Yeah, super, super important. I think that that was one of the bigger surprises for me uh, in being divorced was being a, you know, our culture is so set up for dual incomes. I mean, just the the cost of living now, especially in Los Angeles, I mean, it's insane. Um, Whenever I tell people what I, you know, what I pay in rent on my own by myself, they're like, absolutely. In other parts of the country, they're like, what are you, crazy? And I'm like, yeah. And I actually, you know, if I were to move in my area right now, mm-hmm. um, I would probably be paying double 
uh, what I'm paying now. So, I mean, it's insane. The cost of living is so, it's so high all across the country, but especially in certain um, urban areas that you really need to take that into consideration. And the idea that you are hundred percent responsible for all of the bills all by yourself is, can be shocking. Yeah, it can be, it can be really scary, you know? It's almost like moving out on your own again when you were 22, maybe you graduated college and and got out on your own. You had no idea what kind of luxury your parents had been keeping you in up until the point that you were responsible for all the bills. Yep, (laughs) absolutely. Um, But the big difference is, of course, you you might have a couple of kids with you now too as you're getting ready to move out on your own again. So developing a post-separation budget that's realistic and can be adjusted as your life evolves is a, a great idea also. Yeah. Um, yep. Your credit report. I mean, you might need to apply for a home loan on your own or apply for new credit separate from your spouse. You know, things to look at as you're developing your your post separation um, financial life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, making sure you have access to cash and opening a bank account that's in your name only is uh, is very important as well. Yeah. Let's talk about that because um, we had talked about that a little bit, and I'm and I'm people say. Like, what do you mean stash cash? I mean, if if everything gets split up at the end of the day, like, you know, people say like squirrel cash away, but then if it's a 50, if everything's 50-50 and all assets and all liabilities are split down the middle of that cash, why should people stash a little bit of cash? Well, you're going to need cash. It's a great question. First of all, Kate, thank you so much. Um, you, you are going to need some cash to fund some of these initial uh, divorce initiatives here, you are going to need to pay a retainer to your attorney. You are also going to need to possibly put down a uh, deposit on a new apartment, something like that. So having cash that's in your name only that you know you have safe access to uh, is a great idea. I We had a client a few years ago who was uh, starting the divorce process and her husband actually called the bank and canceled all of their checks. So she no longer had the ability to write checks anymore. And it was really a terrifying thing for her because she didn't know how she was going to pay any bills. Credit cards will only get you so far in this world. Um, It's important to have a credit card that can't be cut off either, but having cash, cash is king. It's, it, it always has been, it always will be. And having your own account that you know is there and you know is accessible is a very important uh, piece to, to moving on. So um, make sure that you do that. If you uh, do put money into it, that's fine. When your attorneys do take a look at marital assets, the money inside of that account will be considered a marital asset, certainly. And that's okay. Right. It needs to be in a place where you can always get to it. Yes. I have had clients have their, their, all of their assets frozen and be locked out of getting, you know, not have access to their own money. And ultimately that's not legal or maybe, it, I don't know, but like ultimately they're going to get access to that money at some Correct. point. Yeah. It's, but, it's a great area, but in order to uh, get the access, you do ultimately have to go to court for it. So right. you know, it's, it's not legal to cut one spouse off entirely, but it's going to take a few days to sort out. Right. Exactly. It'll take something to get it sorted out. So you may as well have, while you're going to have to claim it as a marital asset, it is important for you to have a some some safety net. Exactly. Um, you know whether it's cash under the mattress or a separate bank account that you open or like money that you give a friend to hold for you. <laughs> you know, yep. Sure. Yep. you really want to be able to have that. I think that's a really important point. Mm-hmm. You know, another thing is health insurance. 
Uh-huh. I know that when I got divorced, you know, I'd been on my husband's health insurance, fantastic health plan mm-hmm. um, for years. And all of a sudden I didn't have health. I didn't have it. And, you know, I could go Cobra, which was going to cost me thousands, yes, that's like expensive. more expensive than anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, and ultimately, you know, my husband at the time, he said, you know, I can't have you being uninsured. Um, right. this is not something I can, we can have, um, and he paid my health insurance for, he paid my Cobra for six months um, wow. after, after our divorce was final because he, you know, understood that it was important that his son's mother have health insurance. And okay, I was that's a very mature approach to, to that situation. Yes. And I think that you were lucky in that, that your yep. husband had the foresight to see that that was very important and that taking care of the mother of his sons was uh, yep. extremely important. Yeah, that I will say, you know, my, uh, that's, that's the ways in which our divorce went so well, while our marriage did not go well, our divorce went so well, because of things like that, you know, there's that he was very, you know, he's always had a very uh, good eye for that kind of stuff. But, um, Mm -hmm. but there are plenty of people that are not right. And so knowing, you know, health insurance is so incredibly expensive today in our country. And so that is an expense that you really want to factor in mm-hmm. uh, and make sure, you know, depending on your state to call the exchange, really understand that, you know, um, how much it's going to cost and, you know, who's covering the kids, right? Cause right. that's, yep, absolutely. So, you know, the, the great thing there regarding the children is that if, uh, let's say you're the, the non-working spouse, if there is a non-working spouse, mm-hmm. um, you know, the kids could still be covered under your right. spouse's plan. That's terrific. For you, though, uh, it, it may happen that you're not. Initially, at least while you're going through the divorce process, typically nothing changes. You'll remain on their health plan until the divorce is final. So you have a little bit of time to figure this one out. Yes, until it's final. So what happened to me, by the way, was mm-hmm. that um, I was sort of, you know, the, the health plan didn't, you know, that didn't catch up. I didn't know that as of the date of divorce, like as of that date, my, I was no longer insured by his, uh, on his plan. That's right. And so, but I didn't know that. So I was continuing to go to all my doctors and I was doing all this stuff and I was, you know, acting like I still had health insurance. Sure. And, you know, six months later, they basically sent me a retroactive bill. Oh, no. And they were like, yeah, as of the, as of the date of your divorce, that, you know, that it was final, you have, you had, you were not insured by us. And <laughs> it was really oh, wow. screwed me. Wow. So, you know, essentially, unwittingly, I'd been, I'd been uh, committing insurance fraud. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> Oh, so you're a, you're, you're a borderline criminal on top of everything else. On top of everything else. Right. So, I mean, you know, I paid them back and I was like, Oh crap, I didn't know that. I'm so sorry. You know? Oh my gosh. That's Um, funny. But you know, so my, my mistake is your gain everybody. So, uh, just, you know, and you know, yeah. And my son now has my, he's got way better coverage than I do. I'm sure. Exactly. I mean, even if it's just catastrophe insurance, you've got to have something you know, um, it's it's uh, it's important not to put off doctor's appointments for too, too long. But in the interim, while you figure out what the best plan is, if you just have catastrophe insurance, it's relatively cheap and will take care of you in, in the event of a, of, a, of a terrible, you know, occurrence, like a car accident, something like that. But, yeah. you know, it's funny. I mean, even those of us with the best intentions, we enter an emotional firestorm when we start considering divorce. And it can be hard to remember some of these things that are going to uh, affect us greatly once we're through it. A lot of these companies like 
Blue Cross and um, and uh, United, they offer relatively cheap policies for single individuals that are separate from your employer. So you can start looking into those options if you're unemployed, but um, your employer is really the best place to start. And with health insurance, as you know, you typically can't make a change in the middle of the company's uh, fiscal year, whatever that is. But if you have a significant life event, such as a divorce, they do make exceptions Uh for that. So checking in with your employer and finding out what a qualifying event would be to adjust for your health insurance uh, coverage, they likely will allow you to get your own coverage and and you add your children to or not just depending on whether it's a better deal for you and your spouse. Oftentimes too, healthcare for the children is written into the final divorce decree. So uh, your attorneys will help negotiate that in terms of who should be responsible for covering the children. So luckily that's something that we, we can, um, have a lot of assurances on going forward because it'll be written in. Right. And, you know, this is one of those things, you know, I always say that, um, you know, you're going through the going, making the biggest legal and financial decisions of your life in the middle of the biggest emotional upheaval of your life is a recipe for disaster. And so, you know, these are all very sort of level-headed, important decisions that need to be made with a level head. Mm -hmm. And when you you know, when you don't have a level head, these are the kinds of things that can really affect you and screw you down the line. Right. I mean, not, you know, not having access to your own money, not having health insurance, not having a clear enough head to say, okay, what is, what am I going to need? Like really logistically, I can't, you know, sometimes it's exhausting, it's overwhelming. Right. Which is why I, advocate for taking time, like let the dust settle before making these decisions. Absolutely. You're, right. you're absolutely right. And you will have a much better outcome if you're able to focus on these decisions as transactions that you're trying to negotiate instead of marital rights and wrongs that you're trying to litigate, you know? Yes. Yes. So, I love what you said in the beginning that we're unwinding this partnership that's been reduced to nothing more than a business arrangement. That's what this is. At this point, divorce is a transactional process. It is. And you are litigating, you know, or making decisions about property and money and time. Mm -hmm. It's not a time to be, it's not a referendum on the emotional state and who did what and right. Because if that's what you're litigating, you are setting yourself up, I think, for financial uh, and legal disaster. Absolutely. That's true. And, and, and there will be no emotional peace at the end of that either. You know, if you go into your divorce seeking justice, you'll likely be sorely disappointed here because it's just about dividing assets, parental responsibility, and then leading your separate life. So this is the part where we try to limit that collateral damage that I was talking about in the beginning as well. Yep. Uh, the collateral damage to you, to your children, to our other relationships, and the community that you've worked so hard to establish for your family. So remember that the financial negotiations here are about setting you up for the future and not litigating the past. So whether you decide to stay in your marriage or leave it, the financial organization that you're doing now will serve you well in either circumstance. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it works uh, it works in both cases. You know, gathering all of the information today will help your attorneys as well to, uh, you know, to negotiate with your ex-spouse. They need to have all the information. And, um, and even if you're not really sure how it all fits together, you're paying them to piece it all together on your behalf and to help you make the most 
uh, educated a decision in the end in terms of what you need, what you want, and ultimately, of course, what are in the best interests of your children, mutual children. It's really all about them in the end if, if you have them. So my my thing is, you know, I don't. I always say like. You can be as angry as you want and bitter as you want and, you know, and litigate and be nasty all you want if you don't have kids. I, that's fine with me. Yeah. Um, the only person you're affecting is yourself and your spouse. Correct. But when you have kids, as far as I'm concerned, um, this is not negotiable. Right. We, you know, right. Protecting ki- kids is my first priority, and that's why I do everything that I do. I, I know, and, and I, know, I know how important that is to you, Kate. And I really love that mission because, at the end of the day, you know, we aren't uh, we aren't raising kids; we're raising adults. You know, we need yeah. we need to be adults in this world and not yes. children. And if if they see us behaving like children with our ex spouses, what is that going to teach them about uh, about uh, marital relationships and uh, just personal relationships growing up? And your relationship with, with money is very real also. We all have a relationship with money and some, some of those relationships are healthy and some of them are not. Yeah. And um, the, great, uh, the great challenge, but also gift in divorce here is resetting yourself financially. And if you haven't been doing things the way that you wanted to do them in the past, now is a great opportunity because you get to manage your own financial life individually making decisions yourself and not having to worry about someone else's desires or issues with money. You know, it's just your relationship uh, with money on your own and no third party meeting. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes that is really one of the, one of the, I've found that to be one of the most challenging aspects for myself because somehow I was never, I I didn't, I, I, I don't know how my mother has like impeccable money skills, like crazy. Mm -hmm. And I think that I rebelled and sort of went in the other direction and was really sort of irresponsible and a little bit like uh, Pollyanna-ish about the whole thing for Mm -hmm. many, many years. And then, you know, and then I got into my marriage and as my, as my ex-husband started making more and more money, I could sort of be frivolous and not have to be responsible about it. Sure. Um, And my growth in divorce, and I still struggle with this, by the way, daily, but my growth in divorce, it has been about being, you know, recreating that relationship with money and my money habits and really being like a grown up about it, which is hard. You know, mm-hmm. for some of us, it's really hard to be a grown up about money. Like we don't want to. It's, you know, it's funny, Kate, you know, I think in a lot of ways, we still feel like children at heart because we still have a lot of the same goals, dreams, uh, but fears and insecurities that we had as a child as well. And we, we, we carry that for, for our entire life. And, you know, oftentimes our relationship with money does start at a very early age. It's heavily influenced by our parents and what they taught us. And it's hard to let go of some of that, even as we move through adulthood and different phases of our life. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. You know, one of the, speaking of grown up things, mm-hmm. right? Like really, really grown up stuff yeah. is your assets and splitting up assets and debt. Yes. Right. Like, I mean, this is like, oh my God, college, college funds and retirement accounts. And I mean, this is like, I will tell you that the, we'll talk about this in a minute, but the, you know, the, the, really the financial, the, especially the, the splitting up of the retirement account stuff. Uh-huh. I, I think I've, I've, I've told you this and I've said this before on this podcast is that that document 
was way thicker than my entire divorce agreement. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Because, because the divorce agreement just sets you free, but these documents are about the money. So (laughs) it's crazy. So speaking of a grown-up stuff. Mm-hmm. What do you need to know about, you know, it, you know, you were talking about inventorying these sorts uh-huh. of things, right? What is there to look for? First of all, if if you already have the budgeting down, um, mm-hmm. good for you. You're halfway there. But the yeah. inventorying of the assets and the debt, I think, can be a little bit more difficult, especially if you are not heavily involved in your family's finances, you often don't know where the money is. Yep. So that's something we have to really get our arms around as well, especially as we're going to see attorneys and starting negotiations. So um, first thing that you probably should do is gather up copies of your life insurance policies, your uh, asset statements, bank account statements, wealth advisory statements, um, things like that. You know, even when we're sure that the divorce is something that we want, it's it's still a very emotionally trying time when feelings overwhelm logic, but logic is really important right here. And especially when it comes to something like making a list, gathering all of these things up, just think logically about what you own, where money has been coming into the checking account from, and possibly where your spouse could theoretically be even hiding money. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. not that they would do that intentionally, but it could be that things get forgotten. So you want to, you know, exactly. And your, your tax return can really uncover a lot of hidden assets too. So, you know, make sure you've got copies of the tax returns. Cause even if you don't know how to read a form 1040 or a schedule C, you don't need to, your attorneys have people that can handle that, but, but that can, can help a lot. But you know, knowing where these uh, asset statements are, and, and providing them to the professionals, not all assets are created equal. And so agreeing to split things up is a lot more complicated than just saying, you take this and I'll take that. You know, we have to really look at the, uh, the tax consequences of you taking this and, and the other taking that. Yep, so, absolutely. Um, yeah. that, that's important. And, and debt, of course, is, is equally important. Uh, what asset is the debt tied to? It, will one partner be assuming the debt and assuming the asset, or will we somehow be splitting this in half? All very important considerations. So um, in, in this regard, your biggest task is going to be just finding everything, making a copy of it, making sure it's accessible to you. Sometimes when, you know, when the emotions take over, people will change passwords. They'll do things like that to try to lock you out of, of this information. And we don't want that to happen. So if yeah. you are contemplating a divorce, just make sure that you know where all this information is and that you can uh, give it to the professionals. Yeah. And if, if you're considering divorcing someone who you think might become vindictive, you know, you want to get this done first and on the DL, right? Don't right. have this be after. There's such a thing as a forensic accountant, which will be That's your exactly right. really an important asset to have in, in your, on your team. Because if there is money, I mean, oh my goodness, I have a client who's got you know, she knows that her spouse is hiding money in, you know, foreign lands kind of thing. Uh-huh, right? sure. I, I actually have a couple of these couple of, I know a couple of women who have had this happen, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and it's going to take a forensic accountant to find that money. It is. To be able to have it because you don't want to miss out on that. That is, that is the purpose of this, right? Correct. Yep. I have, I, I know people have clients 
friends even who, you know, just sort of, you know, there was plenty of money. And so they just never really thought about it and never really um, looked at, at the, at the financials every month, you know, he took care of it and she just didn't really take, didn't worry about it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, found that come to find out when they start getting divorced that he actually had, you know, been paying something like $30,000 a month to the country club because he'd been taking his mistress there. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know, like wow. there was a lot of money missing mm -hmm. and, you know, she couldn't get it back, but had she right. actually been looking at the financials throughout the marriage, she would have known. Right. You know, right. Mm -hmm. um, stuff like that. Right. You know, I have right. a friend who, you know, who is the breadwinner in mm -hmm. her marriage and part of their agreement was that he would just handle the money. Like he would handle the financials and the, you know, paying the bills and all of that as his, you know, stay at home dad or, you know, lesser employed. And because he does freelance work and stuff like that. And, you know, come to find out years later that, you know, she was, she was booking trips and she was like, I'm making a ton of money and I can take this trip to wherever. And, you know, finally he had to say, um, actually you can't. And she was like, why? Uh -huh. And he had made a terrible accounting error. He owed, they owed the IRS, you know, oh, no. of dollars. And again, she was like, if I had only looked right. And he was just too scared to tell her, you know, but she said, but that's on me. She said, that's on me. I didn't want to know about it. She's right. Because we all have a responsibility to understand how much money is coming in and what's going out and, and what we have, you know, we really can't ever leave that to someone else, even though our spouse should be the person that we're able to trust more than anyone else in this world. They're not infallible and they make mistakes now and then yeah. too. And she may have caught this if she'd been paying attention yeah, she may have even absolutely. caught it and been able to save them both from yeah. a lot of angst and, uh, and worry and, 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 and financial uh, hardship later on. So yeah. it really is on her as much as it is on him. And, you know, like I said before, I think that a lot of couples really do fall into a comfortable routine of one, one spouse managing it with the other spouse, just going about uh, their daily life and not worrying about it. And that's just not, uh, that's not how it works in 2019. You know, we all have to be aware and, um, and understanding of these things. You know, as as women, especially, you know, Kate, you and I, we yes. we want to see women taking a, a greater um, ownership in all aspects of life. You know, uh, yep. at work, at home, out in public, in in politics, everywhere. Yeah. You know, so we all need to be equally equally engaged in in this effort. Absolutely. And here's the thing, right? In our in our capitalist society, in our capitalist patriarchy, mm -hmm. it is imperative that we have, if we want to, you know, we talk ad nauseum about women's empowerment. If right. we are not financially empowered, we will get nowhere. Correct. The reason that we make, you know, 73 cents on the dollar or whatever it is at this point you know, is because we don't talk about it because nobody talks about money. Mm -hmm. right? right. I mean, there's a, there was an article, I think this week that came out that said, you know, ask your, ask your coworkers what they're making. Somebody, yeah, some, absolutely. some woman asked their male coworker, they had a, an honest and frank conversation. Turned mm -hmm. out he was making $10,000 more than her for the same job. Mm -hmm. And he yep. went to bat for her in helping her get a raise to, to bring great. that up. Right. That's we amazing. To be, isn't it? 
It's amazing. We have to be having these conversations if we want to be empowered across mm-hmm. the board and have, you know, equality in the workplace, in our relationships, we have got to be financially empowered, it, like first and foremost, I think. Absolutely. And, you know, knowledge and education is what creates that power. Yep. So we need to really take care to become educated and understand a lot of these things. Um, women control more than half of the money in this country. Mm-hmm. I think that that's a well-known fact. And, um, you know, women outlive men, we tend to at least. And so Uh, (laughs) we, we have, we have a way of, of killing them early, I guess, but we, 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 (laughs) so, so we, we have, there will be a time in almost every woman's life where she will need to be responsible for her finances. If she does not decide today that she's going to learn how to do it, then she might be learning, uh, by default when she's 78 or 85 or, uh, somewhere in there. And, um, you know, it's, it's important to learn these skills now and understand. And I think most men would be very happy to have a little bit of help in this area as well mm-hmm. and, um, and have their wife be an equal when it comes to making the decisions about money. As we're on the subject of separation and, and divorce, you know, and spouses here, it's important to know who your spouse's beneficiaries are on, on their retirement accounts as well as your own in mm-hmm. the state of California, at least. For an IRA, your spouse is the beneficiary unless they sign off agreeing not to be. So yeah. if you're suddenly going through a divorce, you may want to check in with your legal counsel about changing the beneficiary on your retirement accounts now because you wouldn't want all of that going to the ex-spouse. And you, we need to know this because I've had clients have actually have their husbands forge their signatures on those things. That's right. That stuff can happen too. And it comes out in the divorce proceedings. They're like, well, you signed off. It's like, I know I did not. (laughs) That's right. Exactly. And so, you know, bringing this up to, to your legal counsel early is, is a, uh, you know, is a great idea. There could be some other retirement benefits through your spouse's employer, like an employer sponsored, you know, retirement plan that you could be eligible to part of either a defined benefit plan that uh, pays out later on after retirement um, there are, are legal things that can be put in place in order to ensure that your half is received. We call those um, quidros, qualified mm-hmm. domestic retirement order. That's the thing that was thicker than my entire divorce. Correct. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> quidro always is, exactly. It's, it's very, very thick. You know, in this day and age, employers are used to dealing with this sort of thing from, from their employees as well. So it's, it's not foreign to them. So yeah. you should not have any fear in asking to see documentation or whatnot. It will not affect your spouse's employment, uh, but it's it's an important thing to look at and uh, to and take care of. Yeah, um, let's talk about your personal credit. A lot of us, we our credit is basically all wrapped up with our spouse at this point, right? Correct. Um, what do, what do we need to know? I mean, we obviously the first thing to do is to get your credit report, get your personal credit report, right? Yes. Mm-hmm which you can do through TransUnion or Equifax or uh, what's the other one? There's another one. Oh, it, it's, it's another E, it's Experion. Oh, Experion, right, exactly, right, okay. And so, you, you know, you definitely want to, and then you want to set up like monitoring, right? Like something like Credit right. Karma, is that sort of that, what? That would be great. Yeah, setting up monitoring is, is, is a great thing to do, especially in the very beginning stages of this, because, you know, if you're contemplating a divorce, it's, likely that maybe your spouse is as well. And they, they could start to 
do a few things without your knowledge, such as take out a new credit card that might be in your name, might have your name attached to it. And you wouldn't want that. So the monitoring will keep you aware of any new inquiries on your credit. And it might also be wise to freeze your credit for the time being so that no new debt can be taken, no new credit lines can be opened, that kind of thing in, in your name. If your spouse wants to open one up in their own name and, and take credit, they can still do that. And quite frankly, that's fine. So that when you sit down at the negotiating table here, that debt is going to be looked at as his or hers um, and not yours. So joint lines of credit, if they can be closed, should probably be closed um, if you can. And that, that might signal, though, to your spouse you know, what you're planning or what you're doing. That might be okay, though. They, they may not notice, but they might. Uh, Same with credit cards, any joint credit cards, maybe close those down or at least make sure the balance, the available balance is is as low as it possibly can be. If you've got a maximum of 20,000 on that card, maybe you lower it to five, Mm. something like that to control uh, what the other spouse could be doing behind your back. But yeah, credit's an important thing in this case because you will need your credit when you go to apply for a new apartment or a new home loan, something like that. So holding your credit intact is, is an important, important thing in in the divorce process. Yes. Very super, super, super important. What else do people need to know? Like if they're thinking about this. An important thing to know also, and it's been a popular theme during our discussion. It's just your spending habits and whatnot, what it costs to run the household. That's going to be very important in, in the divorce process because of the uh, established marital standard of living. And when it comes to negotiating settlement and maintenance, child support, things like that, there's a need-based component and then there's an ability-based component. And it's, it's going to depend on your spouse's ability to pay as well as your ongoing needs. And so there's no reason to ramp up spending or change anything that you do, but you do need to be able to track it and show your attorneys and your spouse's attorneys what it costs to live your lifestyle. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I would say too, that, you know, I think the best advice I can give uh, from like being on the other side of this, having been uh, married to a man who made a lot of money and still does, Mm-hmm. And then suddenly going out on my own, right? That, you know, my standard of living maybe lasted for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. But after that, you know, it was basically as long as my spousal support was, you know, I only sure. had a couple of years of that. I, absolutely. And as much as we have a need or desire probably an ego-based, if I'm, if I'm honest about my experience, right? Sort of an ego-based desire to, to keep your standard of living what it was. I think it's prudent to consider lowering it, lowering it significantly Mm -hmm. because you can always raise it down the line. Absolutely. If you lower your standard of living, if you get a smaller house than you want or a, you know, an apartment rather than a house or, you know, really sort of like think of, of, of shrinking your standard of living, you can start to save. You know, I was able to save a significant amount of money every month that actually allowed me to live off of that spousal support for an extra year. That's fantastic. That's Um, great. It was, it was because, you know, and I still, I think sometimes I'm like, I really should have, I really should have gotten a smaller house. I really should have, 
you know, because I do feel a little bit encumbered by the financial burden of a single life. Right. And, you know, this is 10 years later. And as much as I thought I was going to be remarried by now, obviously, <laughs> um, you know, that's not still that's time, not, Kate. Don't worry. He's out there. Well, right. Thank you, Kimberly. Uh, <laughs> from your <laughs> lips to God's ears. But also, I am done assuming that a man is going to rescue me financially, right? Good. And so that is not what I want to pin my hopes on. What I want is, so what I want for everyone, what I want for all women is like, you know, empower yourself as much as you can financially. And Mm -hmm. that might mean taking a, you know, a step down in terms of what you're used to. Absolutely. I think, you know, this is, you know, one of the biggest, biggest financial mistakes I think women make in divorce is keeping the house, right? Absolutely. Yep. Had I kept my house, I would have drowned years ago. I mean, I, God knows, first of all, um, you know, the mortgage was really high. We bought uh-huh. at the top of the market. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a beautiful house. I mourn. I still, 10 years later, I mourn losing the house and the divorce because I loved it so much. Sure. Mm-hmm. However, it had a really high mortgage. Yep. And um, I'm sure you don't mourn that mortgage payment. And I'm sure you uh, wouldn't mourn the feelings of, uh, of, of fear and stress each month in, in paying that, that mortgage. So no. you about and by the way, you gained out of letting that house go. You gained a lot when you let that house go. Absolutely. And by the way, he needed to put in a whole new sewage system this year. It needs a new roof. Mm-hmm. You know, there is, I, I am in a rental. I rent my house now because uh-huh. first of all, I couldn't get a mortgage when I got divorced because they didn't consider spousal support income. Interesting. So, and my mom was going to co-sign and they wouldn't use retirement, even though she had like a lot of money in her retirement accounts, they wouldn't use that as collateral. They don't count retirement assets as, as, uh, as potential funds for a, uh, for a new right. home. Right. So I did ask my ex-husband if he would co-sign a loan for me. And he said, no, which is a whole other thing where, you know, I get it. He didn't want to be financially tethered to me, but also by the way, I had given up my career and been a stay-at-home mom and my investment in our union was sort of like, wait a minute, like, really? You can't, <laughs> you know, but anyway. Right. Yeah. You know, this week, my house has needed all new pipes uh-huh. and massive leaks were found under the house and my entire bathroom had to basically be gutted. And guess what? Not my problem. Not your problem. Exactly. <laughs> That is, and that's the beauty of being a renter. And oftentimes the, the best financial decision, especially in Southern California here, renting is cheaper than owning in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. So, you know, keeping keeping the house is is a really tough one, Kate, because I think there is a lot of emotion that goes yep. into this particular decision. Absolutely. I think that people want to keep the home less because they love the house and more because they love their children and want very much to not disrupt their children's lives. And I think it's a much greater disruption to children's lives when parents who were not financially strapped are suddenly very financially strapped. Yes. It's actually a bigger disruption. So letting go of the house, you know, the thing to, to think about is that what's inside of your children's rooms and what's important to them is coming with you wherever you go. It's coming. 
You know, that's actually the reason I gave I, I gave up my house. Um, I don't know that I've told this story on the podcast before, but um, in our first mediation, the house was the first thing that we were, you know, there was sort of the first bone of contention or, you know, possible. It's the biggest asset. It's the biggest asset. It's the biggest asset. And, you know, I was, I said, I am the mom. I am with him. I was a stay-at-home mom. He's with me all of the time and, or most of the time, Uh, even though we were going to do 50-50, I was still doing pickup every day because he wasn't able to do that. Right. And I said, I just, I, you know, I am consistent and I want the house to be consistent for him. Sure. And my ex said to me, he said, Kate, wherever you go, you are home. Right. And he said, I am already disenfranchised by being the working parent, by being not the mom. Right. Um, and our son was little at the time. And he said, wherever you are is home to him. He said, if I keep the house, at least th- that is an anchor and a tether for him. That, you know, that's familiar. And I mean, of course, you know, he had a wonderful relationship with him, but still, you know, I was sure. the primary parent. Right. And you know what? It That, I, in that moment, I was like, you're right. You're right. You get it. Take mm-hmm. it. Because I felt that so strongly for him that right. he already felt disenfranchised. He already felt like a little bit, you know, quote, less of a parent, even though he's not, he's, you know, a very dedicated dad. Mm-hmm. And, and I thought, you know what? I, I can't argue with that. Right. And, and I love that your, your ex shared his, his vulnerability with you, Kate, because yeah. that really created a safe place for you to share yours with him. And it sounds like your divorce process was a little bit more mature and uh, both of you took a little bit more of the high road than, than we see often. And kudos to you and to yeah. him for that, because that that's so important in this. And he's right. The tether for your son is you. It's not the home. It's, it's yeah. or the house, I should say. The home is what you create yeah. with him. And mm-hmm. the house is just a thing. Yeah. And um, Absolutely. And, you know, my ex and I did our divorce so well. We Mm -hmm. did marriage horribly. Mm -hmm. I mean, we were, you know, it's, it's true. We did. We really, we really were able to create a very mature because everything that we did that to try to save our marriage didn't save it. And so (laughs) we put all those tools to work for us. So you you did what you could. And, uh, and, and when you've exhausted every avenue, then the right path to take is divorce and, and it is better for your son in the long run. Absolutely. 100%, 100%, so absolutely. the right thing. And you know, that with, with the house, it, it's, it's really, you have to let it be a financial decision as hard as that can be, because you're now going to bear the cost of living in that home on your own. Whereas it was a joint effort before. So especially if you were used to being a dual income family, well, now you're definitely going down to one income mm-hmm. and, uh, can you support that house on just one income? Right. It's, a, it's, it's a tough thing. Additionally, if you do wind up holding on to the house, keep in mind that if you've got a low basis on that home and you go to sell it in five years, you're only getting an exemption for one person and not both spouses because both spouses don't own it anymore. So your exemption for tax purposes is only 250000 and not five hundred. Mm-hmm. So what that means is that if you have a, let's say $1 million gain on the home, you purchased it for 2 million and now it's worth three, which those of us in Southern California know exactly how this works. If you bought a home in, uh, in 2010, for example, 
it probably is worth 50% again, more than what you purchased it for. Right. So that million is going to be subject to gains taxes, but you get to have an exemption of 250 of that million. So you only wind up paying taxes on a gain of 750 versus if you're married, you get a $500,000 exemption. So that's something to consider as well. If you take the house on your own, that very valuable asset, and then your spouse is paid out in other ways for his interest in that home, well, what he has paid out might be post-tax money. And what you're receiving is essentially pre-tax. So we've got to be careful about those considerations as well. Yeah. So, you know, something to think about as you're, as you're wondering if you should keep the house, if you sold it now together as a married couple and each move on, that exemption is a huge benefit to you both right now. Yeah. So yeah. that's actually a really good point. That's a mm-hmm. really good point. Um, so. so tell me just, just quickly, a few other things, a few other things that people want to think about and some, and some parting words of wisdom from this. Absolutely. Is such, this has been such a great, rich and informative conversation. Um, so what are some of your parting words of wisdom? You know, uh, my parting words of wisdom, really, there's, there comes a time in life, I think, when you just walk away from all the drama and the people who create it. And life is, <laughs> isn't that so true? So life true. is just too short to be anything but happy and falling down as a part of life, but consistently getting back up. And so you have to really understand what divorce is actually about here. It's not about failure, yours or your spouse's. It's just about finalizing this chapter of your life so that you can start the next. And how well you prepare here will largely determine what that next chapter is going to look like for you. The process, it does take a toll on us physically, emotionally, and financially very much. And all three of these are intertwined. So if you take care of yourself physically, you'll be better able to make good decisions throughout the process. And if you manage your emotions, you'll make better decisions about your family's future. And if you take the time to organize, prepare, and avoid some of the potential pitfalls when it comes to money, I think you'll emerge from this whole thing in better shape financially. So uh, if I could leave you with anything, it's, it's that. It's just just keep going and it will get better and you can make it better every single day. I love it. I love it. Thank you so much, Kimberly. And tell people where they can find you. Absolutely, Kate. Thank you. Um, you can find me on uh, the website for our firm, which is coastalbridgeadvisors.com. Um, just click on the Meet Our Team link. And I'm also on LinkedIn under Kimberly Nelson, and uh, I'll provide a couple of pieces for reference to Kate that she can share in the podcast. Yes, yes. We'll have all of those links in the show notes for sure. Kimberly, thank you so much for this really, really helpful and enlightening conversation. I think this is something that we don't ever really want to think about in advance. And it's probably one of the most important things uh, that we do think about in advance. So thank you. Absolutely. And Kate, thank you very much for uh, everything that you're doing within the community to help make this just a little bit easier on everybody. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Divorce Survival Guide podcast. You can find me over at kateanthony.com and be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes so you don't miss an episode. See you next time.